Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Colombia has been on a historic path to peace since a 2016 deal struck with the armed rebel group, the FARC. The government has been trying to crimp the production of cocaine that once helped sustain the FARC. But a visit to a rural farm shows that a shift to legal crops is turning out trickier than expected. There's much talk of the struggle of young LGBT people. But at the other end of life, things are still tough. LGBT pensioners often live alone, have no kids, and worry about disclosing their sexuality to carers. Luckily, retirement homes that cater to them are popping up. But first... Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, finds himself under increasing pressure, and he seems to be making his situation worse. Over the weekend, he sacked the governor of the central bank, sending the Turkish lira plummeting. This week, his administration ordered the arrest of hundreds of soldiers allegedly connected to a 2016 coup attempt. And he's pressed ahead with plans to drill for oil near the divided island of Cyprus, a move that drew a rebuke from America's State Department yesterday. But a bigger worry has been years in the making. This week, Turkey will receive a Russian missile defense system. The responsibility for this issue of the S-400s belongs entirely to our national defense ministry and the Turkish general staff. May the S-400s be beneficial for our country, our region, and especially our world. That puts NATO at odds with its key member in the region and risks a raft of damaging economic sanctions. Turkey is taking delivery of the first S-400 surface-to-air missiles, a Russian system, crucially, rather than buying an American system, the answer to America's patriot platform. Daniel Franklin is our diplomatic editor. It's controversial because Turkey is a NATO member. Uh, Normally, NATO members buy NATO equipment. Interoperability is key. And there's a particular concern that this system will gather data that will be very useful to the Russians and undermine the effectiveness of NATO equipment, particularly the F-35 fighter jets, and the concern is that this system will allow Russia to undermine the stealthiness of NATO's fighter jets. So Turkey plays host to both the F-35s, the, the most advanced fighter jet in the world, and also then these, these missile defense systems from Russia, and the concern is that essentially they'll, they'll talk and swap information. Well, Turkey does not yet have F-35s. This is part of the point. It's, it's been helping to make the F-35s. It makes, for example, the uh, panoramic cockpit display. It's bought F-35s. Its pilots have been trained in America to start uh, flying them, but it hasn't yet taken delivery. And in fact, America is saying that it won't deliver those F-35s. It's ceased the training of the Turkish pilots precisely because of concerns that the Russian surface-to-air missile system will be detrimental to the uh, security of the F-35s. So why is Turkey so willing to do this, to, to sort of uh, thumb its nose at its NATO brethren to, to take delivery of this, this defense system? 
Well, that's a very good question. Why, indeed, would you want to cut yourself out of a program that is beneficial to you economically, cut yourself off potentially from 100 or so F-35s, the world's most advanced fighter plane? Why would you want to pick an argument, pick a fight with your NATO partners? One of the reasons is Turkey is a proud country. It likes to do its own thing. It was angry at the way that it was treated over the potential alternative of buying Patriot systems from the United States. And it took the United States a while to come around to the idea that it was would be willing to supply those. But there's some speculation that the real reason is that President Erdogan is actually nervous about the American system and wanted a Russian system partly for his own internal security that he saw that the coup, three years ago this month, the coup attempt in Turkey involved the Air Force, and he thinks that a Russian system will give him visibility in future of that sort of attack on, on him and his palace. That may be paranoid, but clearly the coup and the attempted coup three years ago is a very big thing in President Erdogan's mind and been driving a lot of his policies at home. And so you said that America's Congress in particular is, is opposed, in, uh, is strongly opposed to, to Turkey's purchase of these things. Uh, yes, Congress takes rather a, a hard line. But the big question is what the Trump administration will do. And President Trump himself generally has pretty good relationship with President Erdogan, although he did threaten him early this year with devastating the Turkish economy over a dispute uh, with the treatment of, of Kurds. But he had some rather emollient words on this issue at the G20 summit recently in Osaka. The president was not allowed to buy the Patriot missiles. So when he bought the other ones, the S-200s or 400s, he wanted to do this, but he wasn't allowed by the Obama administration to buy them until after he made a deal to buy other missiles. So he buys the other missile, and then all of a sudden they say, well, you can now buy our missile. You, don't, you can't do business that way. It's not good. So President Trump is saying, in effect, that America didn't play this particularly straight over time with uh, Turkey. The problem is that since initial qualms about selling Turkey the patriot system, uh, America has much, been much clearer and Congress has been very clear that it would be willing to sell the system. And yet Turkey has gone ahead and bought the Russian system and is now taking delivery. And despite lots of efforts behind the scenes to try and find a way out of this, to try and switch Turkey away from this potentially very damaging decision. President Erdogan has gone ahead. So how does America now play this? Does it actually allow sanctions on Turkey to go ahead? The uh, Turkish economy is in a very delicate situation. President Erdogan just fired his central bank head. That hasn't happened since 1981. The Turkish lira is suffering. Turkish companies are going to be in trouble with their foreign currency denominated debts. So this is a very delicate situation for Turkey. So how is all of this playing at home for Mr. Erdogan? Well, uh, I think that Mr. Erdogan is hoping that standing up for Turkish interests, as he would see it, and playing a Russian card, in effect, is good for his standing at home. But it comes at a time when he is in some difficulty politically. He's just lost the crucial mayoral election in uh, Istanbul. His, his candidate lost, and that was after he'd had the election rerun, and embarrassingly, he, he lost second time round by an even bigger margin. So there's mounting opposition at home, and even with his, in his own party, 
former Deputy Prime Minister Ali Babajan just quit and uh, the likelihood is that he's going to form his own rival faction to uh, to President Erdogan. So although elections aren't due for some years now uh, for the presidency in Turkey, President Erdogan finds himself under a lot of pressure. Do, do you think his intransigence about this missile system has anything to do with the fact that he might believe he's beset on all sides again? I do think there's an, a degree probably of paranoia in this, and this has been evident ever since the attempted coup, the failed coup three years ago, and he's lashed out in all directions. He's lashed out against opponents, against the the people he thinks were plotting against him. And that, that process goes on uh, with, with purges in the, in the army, for example, and against academics. And I think that he's worried that uh, he has to do his own thing in order to protect himself. Thank you very much for your time, Daniel. Thank you. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. When Colombia's government signed a peace deal with the Marxist rebels of the FARC, it also tried to stem the group's lucrative side hustle, trafficking cocaine. In vast stretches of land previously controlled by the FARC rebels, the government and the United Nations struck voluntary deals with farmers to stop growing coca. They used to sell their product to the rebel leaders. Over the past couple of years, soldiers have helped them tear up coca plants. Officials paid farmers to grow other things, supporting them until they produced profitable legal crops. At least, that's how it works in theory. We went to this place called Uribe, which, if you look on a map, it doesn't look like it's very far from Bogota, but we had, she took a small flight and then spent essentially a day in a kind of ancient jeep rattling along these mud track roads. Daniel Knowles has been reporting for The Economist in Colombia. The town is quite this like little town of sort of kids practicing dancing to, you know, traditional sort of Colombian music. Sort of surrounded by hills. It's a remote, old-fashioned place. Very few cars, lots of horses around. It feels kind of from a different era. And so why were you going there? So Uribe Cunha used to be a center of the FARC insurgency in Colombia, and it's a place where a lot of people used to grow coca, which is used to make cocaine. And I went to meet farmers who used to grow coca, who've been involved in a project to try and stop them growing coca, just to see how it's going. And so how is that project going? Uh, well, so in Uribe, not many people are growing coca. You know, I met one farmer, Efrain Silva, and he took me around his farm and he showed me where the, the coca plants had been. It was still one of them there. He sort of said, you know, ah, they failed to tear that up, but basically they'd all been, been torn up two years ago and he's trying to grow plantains and avocados and he's got cattle and he's trying to move past uh, coca. 
But when I sort of chatted to him, realized, you know, that it's not very easy. When he grew coca, he could sell it. And none of the crops he's growing now, he's really been able to make a living from. So he's, he's been paid money by the government to, to not grow coca. But that's all he's getting now. Things like avocados or plantains, you have to take them down these roads, and these roads are barely roads at all. They're sort of dirt tracks. It, you know, we had to sort of hike, actually, to get to reach his farm. And so it's a real pain for him to be able to sell any of the new crops. So it's actually logistically easier to, to deal with, with coca. Oh, yeah, much easier. Because the thing about coca is that you can process it to one part on the farm. So you take a bunch of petrol and sulfuric acid, and, and you sort of, you know, you crush down hectares worth of leaves into a few kilograms of coca paste and kilogram of coca paste sells for up to three million pesos which is about nine hundred dollars so you know so it's quite a lot of money in quite a portable package and so given that it's difficult to make any money or to move all the avocados or what have you is there you get the sense then that he's intending to go back to coca farming all the farmers i met they say pretty clearly we don't want to go back to farming coca because they associate it stro- so strongly with the sort of fighting that they have when the FARC were there. But they also say that they might have to because the money they're being paid by the government not to grow coca will run out at some point. And nothing else is really working. They still don't have good roads. They still don't really have even things like internet connections or even, you know, mobile phone connections. You know, these people, if they're going to kind of stay living there, then, yeah, they will probably go, you know, they might have little choice to, to go back to growing, growing coca. So coca production is down in Uribe, but has it fallen nationwide? Oh, no, it's uh, pretty much as high as it's ever been. Last year... Uh, according to the latest um, figures that the American government collates, it fell by essentially nothing. So essentially, cocaine production is the highest it's ever been. But why is that, with all this push to, to reduce production? Uh, so one factor has just been Colombia's peace deal, which you know happened at the end of 2016. And under that, farmers were meant to be given a means and a way of getting past growing cocoa. And, and perversely, that might have had a sort of weird effect of encouraging lots of farmers to start growing cocoa so that they could get paid to stop growing it later. So that's one part of it. But there's a few other things as well. You know, in 2015, Colombia's constitutional court banned aerial spraying of coca, you know, which is what they used to do. They used to spray this chemical, a herbicide called glyphosate on crops and essentially try and kill them from the air. And uh, yeah, that's now been banned. And so, you know, that's, that's made it harder to eradicate the crops than it was before. Um, there's also a few other things like... Uh, the gold price fell and a lot of coca farmers and the groups who were involved in sort of uh, producing coca had been moving into illegal gold mining and might have moved back again with a lower gold price over the last five years. So everything seems to be aligned against this push to, to reduce coca production. What, what is to be done? For Colombia's government, it's a real problem because under Donald Trump, the American government is really keen to crack down on the flow of cocaine and, you know, they've expressed a lot of concerns about it. And I'll tell you something, Colombia, you have your new president of Colombia, really good guy. I've met him. We had him at the White House. He said how he's going to stop drugs. More drugs are coming out of Colombia right now 
than before he was president. So he has done nothing for us. Okay. So Colombia's government doesn't have many options. And President Ivan Duque, who's been Colombia's president since last year, has said, because he said it to The Economist um, recently, is that, you know, the, the Colombian government might have to resort to aerial spraying again um, to try and get the crop down. More or less at the behest of the American government, you think? Yeah, I mean, this is exactly what the American government has called for. Mike Pompeo has called for it repeatedly. So has Donald Trump. You know, I mean, the American government has basically said that's what you've got to do. But Colombia's constitutional court is is not the first body to recognize that the glyphosate is a is a health risk. It's a it, it's the 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 talk around it is quite serious. Yeah, I mean, so it's not very effective. You know, it takes a huge amount of spraying to reduce the coca crop by quite a small amount. And you kind of have to keep doing it over and over again because people just replant their crops and they protect them. So it's not really a long-run solution. You might be able to reduce the crop a bit, but the moment you stop again, it just shoots right back up again. So the government will probably have to use more manual eradication as well. That's basically sort of sending soldiers in helicopters to go and pull people's crops out. And that's pretty unpopular too, you know. One of the farmers... I spoke to a lady called Lillian Alataranda. She described pitched battles, basically, between farmers and soldiers when they grew coca. You know, they'd kind of try and fight these guys off the crop. It's really unpopular and miserable sort of business. She said it was kind of like a war. And uh, that's probably going to be coming back to Colombia, too, in sort of greater numbers. So even without the FARC, there is still this, all this conflict and, and coca is still involved. Yep. It seems that, it, you know, as long as somebody can make money producing this, this crop, then it seems to bring a level of violence and conflict with it. Daniel, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Growing older can come with all sorts of challenges. Everything from pension worries to sore knees. But for one group of older people, there are additional concerns. The older LGBT community, they're sort of looking at retirement years with a slightly bit more concern than straight people for a variety of reasons. Lizzie Pete is a researcher at The Economist. They're more likely to live alone. So 41% of LGBT people live alone over the age of 55, compared to 28% of straight people. And perhaps most importantly, they're much less likely to have children. So less than half of LGBT older people have children, as opposed to 90% of heterosexual people. This means that a lot of their options when it comes to care are looking a bit more stressful than those for straight people. So there are about a million gay people over the age of 60 in Britain. Almost three quarters of them would feel concerned about disclosing their sexuality to carers. Again, for a lot of reasons, obviously rampant homophobia, which sadly still exists. In the year to March 2018, LGBT hate crime was up 27%. And there have been a few quite high profile attacks on LGBT people in London the last month or so anyway. And so for all of these reasons, a lot of them are kind of grouping together and and looking at their options and thinking it makes more sense for them to live together in some kind of autonomous residential community. So what are these homes like? Well, it depends on which homes exactly you're talking about. So Tonic Living, which is a home looking to move in within a year or so. 
it envisages more of a kind of retirement home kind of vibe. So, for example, that would mean there'd be mini allotments, there'd be a bicycle club, there'd be a lively restaurant, kind of all the normal things you see in a normal retirement home. The only difference being that it is specifically open to LGBT people. A different group is the London Older Lesbians co-housing movement, which would also have a lot of community activities, but it'd be run by the women themselves and not by sort of outer management in that kind of sense. The first one to open, which looks more likely to be tonic living, will be the first in Britain. Uh, no projects of these kind exist in Britain at the moment, although they do exist abroad. And what about elsewhere in the world? So there's Lebensortvielfalt in Berlin, which was a, quite a pioneer in this field. That's more along the retirement home line. So that's what tonic living particularly has drawn inspiration from. But what Tonic is especially keen on emphasising is that it wants to really provide a communal space for the wider community as well. For example, it would have a public space for younger people in the community to also come and have sort of LGBT-themed activities and stuff like that. But what about the the uh, legalities of that, of kind of uh, restricting your your membership, your, uh, your your housing to the LGBT community? So in Britain, there's the Equality Act, which provides for groups with protected characteristics, which include LGBT folk, to discriminate in their admissions. This is something that has been used by London Older Lesbians Co-Housing, as well as Older Women's Co-Housing, which is another group, which is a women's only housing development. Tonic, nonetheless, does accept applications from all sexualities. It's just its ethos is that it is specifically open to LGBT people. So it's not necessarily exclusive. I mean, there's there's clearly a case for with this sort of vast underserved community. Is is there is anyone making a case against? Is there any pushback against this kind of thing? I don't think necessarily, primarily because in Britain anyway, these are all quite new concepts. So there hasn't been much time for a backlash to emerge yet. Um, from a philosophical point of view, I would think that one of the main pushbacks would be the idea that we're kind of atomizing society into groups. Would you have senior housing just for the black community or just for Muslims, for example? I think that's an invalid criticism anyway. No one's forcing anyone to do anything here. This is just a choice that is open up now to LGBT older people in Britain. And so what do the residents themselves make of it? A lot of them talk of the spirit of sort of camaraderie that would be fostered. Lesbians of a certain age have obviously grown up in an environment which they had to fight a lot. And obviously, homosexuality was actually only decriminalised in Scotland in 1980. So this is all quite recent history. It's in with, within living memory that it was life was a real struggle for these people. And so I think the fact that it's a group of people that have are quite used to a spirit of collectivity mixed with autonomy means that they look forward to a housing situation where that would fit in well with their philosophical ethos. Lizzie, thanks for coming in. Thanks very much, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. 
By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.